Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. These are the audio versions of the sermons preached each Sunday. I hope you enjoy. Our first scripture reading comes to us from Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descending from heaven came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards shook and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has been raised from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. This is my message for you. So they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came to him, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. The word of the Lord. Our second scripture reading today comes from Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. The word of the Lord. So again, I want to say thank you all for coming and worshiping with us on this Easter. I want to admit something to you that when I was composing this sermon, I came to a realization about myself, which is that I actually think that Easter is the best of all the holidays that we celebrate on the calendar. I like it better than Thanksgiving. I like it better than Halloween. I like it better than Fourth of July. I even like it better than Christmas. And I know what some of you are thinking. You are thinking, Alex, that is objectively wrong. (laughs) That is objectively false. On Christmas, what do you get? You get presents. You get stocking stuffers. You get peppermint mocha lattes from Starbucks. How can you possibly sit there and say that Easter is better than Christmas? What do you get on Easter? A basket full of candy and some painted eggs? There is literally no comparison, right? Now here's the thing. Here's the reason why I like Easter so much. Easter is kind of like the New Year's of Christianity, except you don't get a hangover the next day. It's actually really, really good in that way. Now here's why I think that Easter is kind of like New Year's, because Easter is ultimately about the future. Even though you might think that sounds kind of odd, because when did this event happen? 
It was like 2,000 years ago, right? Isn't that what we're here to celebrate today? That kind of sounds like something that happened in the past, Alex. Maybe you don't know the difference between past, present, and future. And you could be right about that. I grew up in Virginia. Is anybody here <laughs> from the South? Did anybody here grow up in the South? Okay, if you grew up in the South, like I did, in Virginia, there are people there that talk about the Civil War as if it happened yesterday. I'm being totally honest about that. You up here in the North, you don't know that necessarily, but they do. For something that happened 150 years ago, they sure do know how to hold a grudge. And I remember going over to my grandmother's house. So I go to my grandmother, and she looked like she'd fought in the Civil War from my perspective when I was a kid, okay? So I go to see my grandmother, and she lived in this house, and it was like a museum. It had all of this Civil War paraphernalia everywhere. Like, literally, her furniture was from the 1800s. And she'd be dragging me around from room to room, talking about Robert E. Lee like he was the second coming of Jesus. And then she'd drag me up, and she actually had, and I'm telling you the truth, she'd take me into her attic, and she had a full Confederate soldier's uniform on a mannequin. It was scary. So... You go up and you look at this and she would talk to me and she would say, Alexander, she would tell me by my full name, Alexander, there was nothing civil about the Civil War. The North should have never started it. And I'm like, I'm four. Can I go play with my toys? <laughs> Which, by the way, we're from the 1800s as well. That's what she would give me to play with. So in Virginia, time kind of stands still, right? Which is probably why I'm drawn to this idea that Easter is about the future. And the reason why I think Easter truly is about the future is because of what Jesus' story, the story of his resurrection, says to us about our future. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. So in order to get into this, I'd like to just recap the story, kind of where we've been, so we know what we read today. Does that sound okay? So we're all on the same page? Yes? Yes? All right, good. Okay, so here's what happens. Jesus is arrested. He is charged with treason, and he's placed on trial. Now, the charge of treason is considered to be when you are betraying one your own, your own country. That's what it means. Treason is when you have betrayed your own country, typically by trying to overthrow the government. Now, that might sound like kind of an odd charge to level against Jesus, right? Would you agree? Kind of odd. But it makes sense when you understand that Jesus called himself the Messiah. In Hebrew, Messiah or Mashiach literally means anointed one. For our purposes today, we need to think of that as a king. That's what you should think of. It's a king. So Jesus has kingly ambitions. He wants to be a king. And if you're going to be a king, what does that mean? You're going to rule over your own country. So if you're going to be a king, what that means is you have to get rid of the people who are currently in power, which means that you have to do what? You have to overthrow the government. And at that time, the government was the Roman Empire. So the charge of treason does make sense in this particular instance. You with me so far? Yes. yes. Okay. Now, if you were convicted of treason, you were sentenced to death. But in the Roman Empire, what's interesting is that unlike other capital crimes, the crime of treason was punished with crucifixion, one of the few crimes where you could actually be crucified. So, this past Holy Week, we talk about Jesus. He goes on trial on Good Friday, but before Pontius Pilate, 
He is convicted of treason. He is crucified. He dies the same day. He is then what? Pulled down from the cross, taken and placed in a grave. The grave is then sealed. Two days go by. We have Saturday. Saturday in the Jewish faith is what? It is the Sabbath. So they cannot do anything. It's a day of rest. Then you come to Sunday. The women who were associated with Jesus, they go out to the tomb to see Him. And what they find in this story is that an angel comes down, rolls the stone away, and says, He is not there. That He is alive. He has been resurrected. He was dead, and now He has come back to life. And what we also see in this story is that Jesus' disciples, they end up seeing Him in various capacities after this resurrection event. Now this story, does it sound amazing to you? It should. Do you experience stuff like that today? Do you know people who died, and then all of a sudden, a couple days later, you're like, oh, you're at dinner. I didn't realize you would be here. No, that's not what happens, right? What happens is when somebody you know dies, they're dead, and they're not coming back. But that being said, I don't want you to dismiss this story as being false. Because when you look at the New Testament and all of the descriptions around the resurrection, what you come to realize is that clearly something happened. There is no doubt about that in my mind. Something happened. And the reason why we know that is because Jesus' disciples would not have continued Jesus' movement if something profound had not happened to them. Because otherwise they would have packed it up and gone home and said, all right, well, that was a good time, and we'll see you later. But clearly something happened. Now, exactly what happened, that's up for debate. Because when you look at the New Testament, you see that the details, they don't exactly align all the way. They describe Jesus' resurrection in different ways. So in some parts of the New Testament, Jesus' resurrection is described as a vision. In other parts of the New Testament, like what we read today, he bodily, physically comes back to life. He's walking around a person like you and I. And then another way he's described is like a ghost or a spirit who can literally like walk through walls. He appears and he disappears. So they saw something. They experienced something. But what that was, it's hard to say. Following that experience, though, they tried to understand <clears throat> what it was that they saw. And so they came up with this way of thinking about the resurrection. And this is very important that you understand this. What they believed is that Jesus' resurrection represented a state of being that every single human being would experience at some point in the future. I'll say that again. That's very important. So Jesus' resurrection represents a state of being that every single human will experience at some point in the future. Now, how and when that will occur, that is a matter of dispute among Christians. There are three different ways that Christians tend to think about it. The first way is that we will experience that resurrected state when Jesus returns during his second coming, when he comes back to earth. The second way is that you will experience that resurrected state only after you die and your soul has gone to heaven. And the third way that Christians talk about this is that you can experience Jesus' resurrection here and now. Now, of these three, I subscribe to the last one. And I want to tell you a story this morning that will hopefully illuminate for you how it is possible that we can experience the resurrection here and now. So, here's what I want you to do. I want you to sit back. I want you to relax. 
Okay? Can you do that for me? And I'm going to tell you this story, and hopefully you're going to come away with a deeper understanding of how we can experience the resurrection here and now. So, the story revolves around a man named Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was born in Vienna, Austria in 1905. He's born to a Jewish family of civil servants. Frankl was an extraordinarily intelligent young man, and he was drawn to the area of psychology. That was the subject that he loved most. And in 1923, he was admitted into the University of Vienna. He started medical school there, and he concentrated in the subjects of neurology and psychiatry. And he also concentrated in areas of depression and suicide. This was, at this point in time, not a, peop- a lot of people were doing that. And what you have to also appreciate is that at the University of Vienna, this was the epicenter of all of the best psychiatric research that was taking place in the entire world. This was the place to be. And he was a rising star. He was at the top of all of this. So he finishes medical school. He starts his residency, and by the early 30s, he's working with patients, and he's doing all of this groundbreaking research on depression and suicide. He's coming up with all of these different understandings and theories of how it works and why people feel this way. And then, all of a sudden, in 1938, all of that comes to a screeching halt because the Nazis invade Austria. And when they make their way to Vienna, the capital where he was, they tell Viktor Frankl, they say, you are no longer allowed to work with Aryan patients. You may only work with Jewish patients because of your Jewish identity. So his patient pool goes from this to this. And he subsists like that for another two years. And then in 1940, he ends up transferring to another hospital, what's called Rothschild Hospital in Vienna. That was the last hospital in Vienna that was still admitting Jewish patients. So he goes over, he becomes the head of neurology there, he's working with them for another two years, and then on October 25th, 1942, Viktor Frankl, his wife, his mother, and his father, they are arrested by the Gestapo, and they are deported to the Therensienstadt ghetto in occupied Czechoslovakia. Now, if you've never heard of the Therensienstadt ghetto, what I can tell you about it is that it was notorious. It was one of the worst ghettos in the, all of World War II. When you went there, it was deplorable conditions. Illness and disease were everywhere. There was very, very little food to survive. People died by the thousands in this ghetto. Now, his father, who was very old and very weak and very fragile, he was struggling as soon as they got to this ghetto, and he died very soon after arriving there and he's being cared for by his son. But they were able to survive. Viktor Frankl, his wife, his mother, for another two years. And then in October of 1944, they were rounded up. They were separated from one another. Viktor Frankl was separated from his wife and his mother, and they were taken to the concentration camps. Now, Viktor Frankl, he was processed through Auschwitz, and then he was taken to various concentration camps in Poland and Germany, but he eventually ended up at the Koffering concentration camp, which is located in southern Germany. Now, when he gets to Koffering, you have to understand that he's gone through a number of years of being malnourished. He is quite ill. He's not doing very well. But when he gets to this camp, and he's with the other prisoners, 
what they can tell is that the tide of the war is turning. So this is late 1944. He's getting there sometime November, December. Well, the war is going to end on May 6, 1945. So he's close. Now, he doesn't know how close he is, but he's close. And the reason they can tell that things are changing is because of two factors. The first factor is that the Allied bombers, they are coming overhead all the time. They're getting closer and closer every day. They can hear the bombing, right, as it's coming down, and they can see them coming in to be able to, to, to see their new targets, which is very, very important. So the second reason why they believe that the tide of the war is turning is because those Nazi guards, they were getting a lot nicer all of a sudden. So those guards, they may have been aware that, in fact, the war was going to come to an end, and they were scared that the prisoners might turn on them and actually hurt them when they were liberated, or they might have been scared that they might be brought up on war crimes. So they were in this situation where they were starting to be nicer, but these prisoners, they acutely were aware of the fact that if they could just make it a little bit longer, they might be able to survive this horrific experience. But just because they were in a situation where the guards were being nicer, it didn't mean that they didn't have to do any work. And so, on one very cold winter day, the guards get up, everybody in the camp, and they march them outside to go and fix a bridge that had recently been bombed by the Allies. So they're marching through this field, and what you have to appreciate is there's snow on the ground. It's super cold. And they're wearing their little prison uniforms that are very thin. They don't have socks. Their shoes have holes in them. And on top of all of this, Viktor Frankl, he has a respiratory issue. He's got pneumonia or bronchitis. So he's really in no condition to be able to do the work that's being asked of him. So he's with them, and he's marching out to the work site. And all of a sudden, he begins to cough. And one cough leads to another, which leads to another. And you know how sometimes that causes this coughing fit to come on where you can't stop? And eventually, he's coughing so much that he collapses down to one knee. And he's coughing there on the ground. And of course, a Nazi soldier can see that he's on the ground. And he's mad because he's holding up the march. And so he comes over to Viktor Frankl, and he takes out his baton, and he starts poking him. And he says, come on, get up, let's go. But Viktor Frankl cannot do this. He's just too debilitated by this cough, which only further enrages this guard who starts beating Frankl on his head and his back, which causes him to collapse down to both knees. Now, what you have to appreciate is that all this time that Viktor Frankl has been in these concentration camps, all of this time, the one thing that's kept him going, the one thing that has kept him alive, is this idea that he developed before he was arrested. It was quite a profound idea. And the idea went something like this, that spirituality and purpose are central to mental health. Now, today, we look at that and we say, yeah, that makes sense, right? I mean, we kind of know that that's true. But back then, he was the first person to ever conceive of this idea. And he was dedicated to getting this idea out into the world. He wanted it 
to be part of psychiatry and psychotherapy so that they incorporated it into their practices. And in fact, prior to the war beginning and prior to him being arrested, he'd been working on a manuscript where he'd written several chapters of a book about this idea. And he was wise enough to know the Nazis would not be super fond of this idea. So he ends up sewing the book into the lining of his coat. He sews it inside of it, hoping that he can save it. But unfortunately, when he gets to the first concentration camp, what happens is they take his coat, they throw it in a pile, and they burn it along with the manuscript. So the only place that this idea exists is in his head. And amazingly, this idea is really what has propelled him to stay alive. When he's in the camps, he's thinking about how he can write different types of works for this, articles and books. He's keeping his mind sharp by trying to be able to write sentences for the chapters of the book that are remaining. He fantasizes about giving these lectures and talks. And in fact, he even does give lectures and talks to his fellow prisoners while he's in the concentration camps about this idea. This idea was literally keeping him alive. So here he is. He's in the middle of this field in Germany, and he's getting beat by this Nazi soldier. And he's thinking to himself, well, I guess this idea is going to die with me, and nobody's ever going to have the chance to hear about it. But then, at that moment, something amazing happened. Without his conscious intention, all of a sudden, he dissociated from his body. And by dissociate, what I mean is his mind left his body. So no longer did he feel himself to be in the middle of a field in Poland. Instead, he felt himself to be in post-war Vienna many years later. And in that arena, he was giving a lecture to a group of people about the psychology of death camps and the psychology of meaning. Now, He's in this lecture hall, he's giving this lecture to, in his mind's eye, a group of about 200 people. And in his mind, every word he says is perfect. It's poignant, it's moving. People are riveted by what he's saying. Now, even though his body is still in this field in Germany where he's getting beat, his mind has dissociated into the future. And he comes to a point in the lecture where he tells the people in the audience about a day in 1944 when he was in the concentration camps where he almost died. He was talking about that very moment that he was going through right then and there. And what he says to the people in the audience is that I had something to live for. I knew I had a meaning. I knew I had a purpose. And so somehow, some way, I found the strength to get up. Meanwhile, Back in that field in Germany, his body got up. In his mind, he's still giving this lecture to all the people. And he says to them, Then I found the strength to take one step in the cold snow. My head hurt, my back hurt, my feet hurt. But then I found the strength to take another step, and then another. So as he gives this lecture in his mind, his body follows suit. And so, 
slowly, gradually, he takes all the steps he needs to get out to the work site. He performs all the work that is required of him. And then he takes all the steps that are necessary to get back to the concentration camp. All the time, he's giving this lecture in his mind. And when he finally did return to the concentration camp and collapsed into his bunk, he imagined that this audience of 200 people was giving him a standing ovation. Now, many years later, when Viktor Frankl would actually give this lecture, he wouldn't give it to an audience of 200 people. He would receive a standing ovation from more than 7,000 people. The book that he wrote was called Man's Search for Meaning, and it has sold more than 9 million copies worldwide. It is considered to be one of the most important books in the realm of psychology. Now, why have I taken all of this time to tell you this story? Because the person who is sitting in this pew, all of you, me, standing here today, Generally speaking, the way we think about the person who we are is that we look at ourselves and we feel that it is the culmination of everything that has happened in our past. So, the person sitting in front of me today, you are the culmination of your genetics, your biology, your life experiences, the way you grew up. Yes? Is that true? All right. That is generally how we think of it. That's who you are in the present. But what Viktor Frankl shows us is that the future has the ability to cause the present. I want to say that again. The future has the ability to cause the present. Are you with me on this? Because this is what the resurrection can do for us. Yes, the resurrection is an event that happened a long time ago. We all know this. But the resurrection is also an event that can happen in the future. And it represents and it symbolizes this future reality that we can become if we so desire. We simply have to catch this vision of our future selves. So, what does this future self look like? Well, according to the New Testament, when Jesus was resurrected, the way his disciples describe him, it's as if he has fully become the person who God intended him to be. And so, therefore, I think we can say that our future resurrected self is when we have fully become the people who God intended us to be. Yes? All right. Now, here's the thing. We in here, none of us, we are not that person yet. I'm not that person. You're not that person. But that is the beauty of the Christian faith, is that we can go through this journey to continually become that person. Now, if you're sitting here and you're wondering, what is it that God intends me to be? What does that person look like? Spoiler alert, I'm going to let you know that person sounds and acts a lot like Jesus, right? I mean, shocker on that one, isn't it, right? I mean, come on, we're talking about Jesus' resurrection. That's what we're aiming towards. So, your future resurrected self, what does that look like? Well, it looks a lot like Jesus. And Jesus... He was a person who cared for other people. So your future resurrected self, you care for other people, particularly those who are suffering. Your future resurrected self, like Jesus, you are willing to sacrifice what you have for the benefit of others. Your future resurrected self, like Jesus, loves all people, 
not just your family, not just your friends, but your neighbors, strangers, even your enemies, and you love them unconditionally. These are things that are hard for us to achieve in our present situation. We can get little glimmers of that person here or there, right? I mean, sometimes you all do that. I know you do. But it's hard to keep it up consistently, yes? But it's not impossible. All you have to do if you want to become that person is like Viktor Frankl. You have to catch the vision of your future self and allow that future vision to change and transform the person who you are in the present. And the more you imagine becoming that person and becoming the person who God intended you to be, the more you can be transformed into your resurrected self. And the more you come to embody that person, the more you come to be like that, the more you come to understand in very small ways what Jesus went through on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. When you kill off those parts of yourselves that are selfish and greedy and hurtful, when you get rid of those parts of yourself, something new rises in place of the old. A new person who is kind and loving and charitable and good in the way that Jesus was. And the more you undergo this process of killing off the bad parts of yourself and letting a new person rise in place of the old, the more you become that resurrected person in the future who you see. Are you with me? Now, if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, wow, that sounds wonderful, Alex. I would love to be able to do that. How do I do that? It is very simple. Jesus lays it all out for us in the New Testament. Jesus shows us the way. And you don't have to do it by yourself. God will help you. This community will help you become that person. This is our meaning as Christians. This is our purpose, to become the person who God intended for us to be, to become our resurrected selves. In Christianity, it is not your past that determines your future. It is your future that determines your present way forward if you are willing to capture and go after that future vision of yourself. And so my prayer for you this morning is that you might leave here today with a slightly different perspective on the resurrection. Yes, the resurrection is something that happened in the past, but today I would ask you to take the first step forward towards seeing the resurrection as something that you can achieve in your life here and now that can change your present reality. Jesus is here to change who we are in this present moment. Jesus is here to transform you into a person who is better than you are right now. And so my hope for you is that you might catch that vision of your future self so that you can become the person who God intended you to be. I want to thank you again for being here on this Easter. You all are wonderful. Happy Easter to you. Enjoy it with your families. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.